April 8th, 2021. Nothing to it but to do it. Welcome back, overtimers. Got a fun one today with post-dispatch MU beat writer Dave Matter. If you are new to the party, my name is David Oliver, and this is my podcast, Overtime with Oliver. St. Louis has its first black woman mayor, Democrat Tishua Jones. Around 60,000 votes were cast, 52% in favor of Jones. She's St. Louis Mayor number 47, and she's got 517 million stimulus dollars none of her predecessors ever had. Go do some good. In a span of 20 hours this week, 12 were shot, 6 fatally, maybe start there. Cardinal home opener is today. First time with fans in over a year and a half. 32% capacity, about 14,500 tickets have been sold. Do not bring cash, it's strictly payment by cards. And as opposed to taxes being included in the price, now they are added onto the top of that price. I'm not an economist, but it'll end up being more. I'll miss the vendors. I'll miss Gibby and Brock. New York, Michigan, Florida, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey accounted for more than 42% of COVID cases reported last week. Guess where I'm not going to vacation, even after shot two. Three things you should, if you have not, go get that shot, man. They've made it really easy to get one of the three shots if you just register online. This new variant from the UK seems to be even stronger than what we've been dealing with over the last year. Go get your shot. Second, new on Hulu. How long has it been since you've seen Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid? Redford, Newman, who are these guys? The fall is going to kill you. I got vision, and the rest of the world wears bifocals. Here's where I ask you to subscribe to the podcast. Gives me the opportunity to give you a heads up on what the new episodes are. If you like it, you can also see our YouTube channel, OT with Oliver. Some podcasts are there. About 90 St. Louis 7s are also up there where I you know, ask guests seven questions that only St. Louisans can answer. So hit the subscribe button. Muchas gracias. And lastly, if you like this conversation with Dave, you might want to go check out previous episodes with Jim Thomas, Vahika Gorian, heck, Dale O'Neill. It's Masters Week. So, Dave Matter, Emmy beat writer for the Post-Dispatch for the last 17 years, Columbia Tribune before that. He's been at the best and worst over those years covering the Tigers. Of course, we reminisce about the games, the move to the SEC, dive into the hunger strike a little bit and its ramifications. And also, and I really enjoy this part, we talk about the craft and what it's like to do what he does in 2021. Here's hoping he comes back once football and basketball do something worth talking about. Welcome to the Overtime family, Dave Adder. Let's go to Overtime. Overtime with Oliver, with my dad. Tell your friends. So nice to meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you. The man behind the byline. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) You got your phone nearby? Yeah. All right, so I know beat writers, if another tiger goes in the transfer portal <laughs> and you got to go, we'll, 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 we'll go back to this. Okay, there's, there's not too many left to get into the portal, so I think we're safe for now. <laughs> what is going, I mean, five guys, you got two transferring that aren't coming back, not to jump into this right away, but uh, every, everybody okay? Yeah, I... I... I just think it's kind of the culture right now, and they're they're sort of at the close to the extreme of it. Of guys just don't like their roles; they want to. They think it's going to be better somewhere else. So we'll see. I saw Syracuse, who went to the Sweet Sixteen, has three in the portal. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think Colorado has six, and they were a pretty good team this year, and it's pretty wild. All right, man. So as we kick this off, we are talking to Dave Matter, who is the Mizzou beat writer for the Post-Dispatch has been since 2013. You worked in Columbia a long time. Where'd you grow up, man? I grew up in St. Louis, uh, South County area. Uh, I went to uh, St. Louis U High. But yeah, I, I lived first 18 years of my life all in St. Louis. In South County where? Uh, Tesson Ferry. Sure. Sort of there, uh, 55 and Butler Hill. That would have been my exit off the highway. I, I would have gone, to, if I went to a public school, I would have gone to uh, to Melville. Um, right around Melville, Oakville uh, border there, but but went to St. Louis U High. So yeah, that's, grew up and I, I was born and my parents lived in Afton when I was born. And then I think around, I think around third grade, we moved a little further south. 
but but that's 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 where home is. Where'd you go and cause trouble? <laughs> um, man, uh, you know, I we had a lot of neighborhood kids around there. Played baseball at at, at Afton there, um, and uh, man, that was that's a lot of what we did. I went to Green Park uh, Lutheran School there. Uh, in in sort of Afton, Melville, right around South County Mall. I mean that that was kind of the uh, that was the area for sure. I'm trying to think of it now. There's a Hooters there, right? <laughs> Maybe I haven't been around that area in a, in a long time. Um, yeah, there's it, it going down Lindbergh now is is a lot different um, when I get back to St. Louis than it, than it is when I grew up. Um, it's it's crazy just to everything seems smaller too i don't know maybe it's because i'm a little bit taller than i was back then but it is uh, it's surreal to go to, to visit that part i don't know if you're taller but you're grayer like me yeah for sure that, that, that that's definitely uh kicked in here the last few years you a casey guy what's that casey guy casey the radio station oh yeah no I, um yeah I, I listened to it back when i was when I was in St. Louis, sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Growing up before you became a writer, was it the sport or was it the words that wanted you to be a writer? Oh, good question. Um, probably first the sports. I love sports growing up, all St. Louis teams and, and really, you know, teams outside of, or just sports outside of just the St. Louis bubble too i mean there's no nba team obviously and there wasn't if the st louis cardinals football team left when i was about eight um so i didn't really have a an nfl team so i just kind of was a fan of all of them or just the league and just like watching nba games and nfl games and and mostly major league baseball games back then you had the blues for sure college basketball um and then i think probably junior high um I played sports, but not a lot. Played baseball, ran track. Um, I wasn't super athletic. I wasn't super competitive playing sports. So I think along the and I, and I loved writing. I loved reading. Uh, reading the sports page more than anything was. Um, I wouldn't say it was a passion. It was just. It was part of my day. It was a. Uh, it was a ritual, and you know, once I sort of figured out that those bylines were real people and that's what they did for a living whether it was uh you know Bernie Miklas or Jim Thomas or Rick Hummel uh or Jeff Gordon once I figured out those were real people and that's what they did for a living there, there was nothing else I ever really wanted to do I, I got really involved with my high school newspaper um more on the sports side of things we had a we had a weekly paper at Slew High and and they still do and it was a lot of work and it was just something I'd just became really natural for me. And um, that's really all I thought about doing. And um, I'm really, really fortunate that, you know, X amount of years later, I, I, I still get to do that for a living. You know, you graduated from Mizzou, which in my opinion yep. is the best journalism school, undergraduate, at least in the country. Yeah. And we grew up in St. Louis. So we just had the benefit of being able to go. Right. Did you look at other places? I did. Um, I, I wanted to go to a big, I wanted to go somewhere where um, not just for the sports part of it, but at that that time in high school, I, I really wanted to be a sports writer. So I thought it makes the most sense to go somewhere where uh, college athletics was, was a big deal um, and, and somewhere with a journalism school. Um, and, and just I wanted that real college town atmosphere and environment because I, I visited a few places. Uh, and and that's that's what I liked most. Uh, I, I was close to maybe going to Indiana. Um, hmm. w- Wisconsin was another one I really liked. Uh, Syracuse. No, I never really got outside of the Midwest. Um, it, it was, you know, Big Ten schools and that kind of corridor of the country more than anything else. Uh, but financially, it made the most sense for me and my family to go to Mizzou, and and then the fact that the journalism school is so good. If that's really what I wanted to do, it 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 made the most sense, and uh, no regrets at all. Um, I really like those other campuses. I had uh, one of my best friends went to Indiana, and we, we could have gone together, but I ended up having 
really good friends at Mizzou too. So it, in the end, it, it really did make the most sense for me. You know, Ackerman went to Indiana. Yeah. Yep. We had him on earlier and he was funny because he was talking about Buck and he was talking about, you know, that experience. I remember going into Mizzou, I think it was Ellis, Ellis campus. Is that Ellis, what it was? Ellis library? Ellis? Yeah. And uh, just kind of knowing that really cool things that happened prior to me and I needed to take that responsibility and be as good as those that preceded me. Did you get that feeling? A little bit. Um, when, when I visited, that was uh, a big selling point. Um, you know, you, you hear the names of people that went through the journalism school there and they, they make sure you know that when you take a tour and you see all the names and especially if you're in, interested in sports. So yeah, that was, that was a big draw for me. Um, and, and just to, to be able to work on campus, whether it's the Columbia, Missourian, uh, at that point, I didn't really have any interest in, in TV, but if I did, you know, they have the NBC station right there. Right. You get that hands-on experience, uh, lots of radio experience. Um, I, I think nowadays when students go through the journalism school and I was fortunate, I get to teach a class there. I started last fall and we'll probably do it again this fall is they really expose those kids to more than just one strict medium. Um, they do a lot of interactive online work. Um, they get exposed to some more you know, podcasting mm -hmm. and, you know, radio and TV. And it seems like when I went through there, it was, it was, you had to pick one and that was it. And you really never crossed into other lanes. Uh, so I like how they do it now. Um, I, I still would have been, a, I think, gone through the, the track that I did doing newspaper writing, uh, maybe magazine writing. I, I think that would have been interesting little bit more long form stuff but uh yeah that was that was definitely the sell i mean you, you saw how prestigious this place was it it's a it's a place that takes itself pretty seriously and it loves those rankings um <laughs> but you know when, when you when you do put out the the people that they do and, and the work that they do and the investment the school makes um you know you might as well brag about it a little bit and when did you graduate i graduated from mizzou in 2000 uh, right. so i got there got there in 96 and uh, just just four years, um, and yeah, that was at two thousand. Were you a man eater guy? No, I never I never did that. Um, I, uh, I I was in a, a fraternity, and I was I was pretty involved there from a young age. So I had to find some balance, and I just never really got into the, the man eater. I, I, I probably probably regret it to some degree because that was that's really good experience. I see the kids now that that they kind of evolved from the man eater to the Missourian, and uh, they seem a little bit more ready. Uh, to go and uh, for me it was, it was I, I took a really sort of unique uh, path I back then you, you didn't start writing uh, for the Missouri until your junior year but I did it the summer of my junior year so it would have been summer of 1998 and there's not a lot going on in Columbia in the sports <laughs> world in the summer um, you kind of catch the tail end of the spring sports season and then you, you do a little bit of the uh, fall sports before they really kick off Back then, it was a lot of like show me state games, and and you had to do a lot of enterprise work. So it was challenging, but it wasn't it wasn't really like a real beat. Uh, so we had to kind of find our own stories. It, so it was it was tough. And then I had the really fortunate experience of um, one of my really good friends was a part time reporter at the Columbia Daily Tribune while going through journalism school. He had just graduated, so a spot opened up on the Tribune staff. And um, I interviewed for a job there, a part-time job. I was still just going to be a junior in college. So I, I, I was able to get that job. It was great, great work. I got to cover a little bit of everything in Columbia, uh, Mizzou, high schools, Columbia College, which is an NAI program that's really, really good and competitive at that level. Uh, just got a ton of experience. So I, I, I kind of had the double track. I was going to the journalism school classes there, but also – working for the you know professional newspaper in town it was an afternoon paper too so it was a really different kind of timeline uh and it was it was great experience i couldn't write for both at the same time so it worked out i couldn't copy edit for the sports section at the missourian while working at the tribune so i got to do a little bit more news copy editing on the missourian side which was really good experience uh and it it, it was perfect i mean i was able to jump into a full-time job there after i graduated but uh, that for me was just as valuable as the education part that I was getting over at the university at the same time. 
Do you know the name Les Carpenter? Sure. I think he's covered. Uh, is he out in Seattle? Uh, yeah. So good friend of mine. In Washington. Okay, sure. Did the Missourian, did the yep. Tribune. Now is at the Post for his okay. second time. He was at the Guardian. And a, anyway, okay. reason for bringing him up was he vividly remembers how growing his uh, how learning his craft at Mizzou was just so different from his colleagues telling them how they learned their their craft like oh okay. you know, even though it's norm stewart even though it's little bitty columbia missouri there were 12 reporters and everybody was oh, trying yeah. to get stories and everybody was trying to do things aggressively that he never saw that again until he went back to the post yeah that's interesting I, that is it's not that way every year some years you get really ambitious student reporters who end up being great and go on to great things um other years it can be kind of a down year but for the most part yeah it is uh, it is cutthroat i remember um being at a ncaa volleyball tournament game i want to say this was probably six seven years ago and there's just so much media attention because, you know, the team was pretty good. So I was at the post-dispatch and we don't cover a lot of the non-revenue sports, but we did when a, a, a NCAA event is going on in town. So I was there, the Kansas City Star is there, um, the Columbia Tribune is there, and then just scores of student reporters from all the different publications. And, and the coach from the visiting team, I think it was Minnesota, walked in. And he's like, oh my God, like, is this the Super Bowl? Like you couldn't believe it. And that's just, that's just an average day covering Mizzou, uh, much less, um, you know, football or men's basketball that generate a lot more interest. So that it is, it is unique like that. It, for me, it's all I've really ever experienced. I, I've covered Cardinal games before. I've, I've gone um, to NFL games. Uh, I, I did an NBA game uh, a couple of years ago in Memphis when I was there for something else. Um, but it, it, it really is like a, um, I don't want to say it's like covering the Yankees or anything like that, but it's, it's good training if, if that's what you're going to do, because, it, it, there's so much competition there there's so many different people uh you know trying to um outdo each other and uh it, it's you know for the most part if you've been around a long time you get to know everyone and, it, and it's it's a friendly environment but it is it is really competitive do you remember the first story you ever broke um i, I remember a lot of the early ones i wrote that summer when i was at the at the missouri and one of them I wouldn't say it was breaking news, but um, Missouri had an assistant football coach, Curtis Jones. He was an uh, older gentleman. He is the father of the quarterback, Corby Jones. And I met him. He had had a heart attack on, uh, I believe it was right around Father's Day, and was hospitalized for a while, came out of it. And then I, I was covering a Show Me State Games baseball game. And um, it, I, I think it was in Fulton. And Corby and his brother and some Mizzou football teammates were playing that day. And, and it was, it was Curtis, their dad's first day, uh, not out of the hospital, but out, out in public to where he could watch the kids play. Um, and I, I had never met him before. I went up and introduced myself and he was incredible. It was kind of cathartic for him to talk about the experience of having this heart attack and uh, life kind of flashing before his eyes and now getting back out there, uh, getting to watch these kids play. And uh, I, I thought it was a decent story. And then tragically, he, he died about six weeks later. And um, so I, they, they put me on that story to write about it because I had had this one encounter with him a few weeks earlier. And so I, I, I did a lot for that. And I didn't really know what I was doing, but I just remember making a lot of calls. And I, I, thought, I, I thought I covered it pretty well. And, and that also helped me get the attention of the Tribune across town. And that's part of the reason they said they hired me because they thought I handled that pretty well. So not breaking news per se, but it was a, a, it was a big story then. And I was, heck, I had no idea what I was doing. I was just kind of making it up as I went along. But um, I, I, at that time I felt like, okay, I, I, I think I can do this because this was a tough story to write. And, uh, and, and I thought I handled it. Okay. It led to a interesting lunch at Quinton's bar. It did. Yeah. Yeah. I was, uh, I'd been the part-time guy there for a while and I was kind of the number two Mizzou football writer. Our, 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 uh, 
full-time guy named Jason Williams, who's still in journalism, still in newspaper journalism out in Cincinnati, a great guy, somebody I really looked up to and learned a lot from. Uh, he had taken a job uh, to go back to Cincinnati, I think to cover University of Cincinnati sports. Um, and Ken Heidholt, our sports editor, is no longer with us, but he, I just thought we were going out to lunch. And, and turns out he was going to, he offered me the job full time to come on and be the Mizzou football beat writer. I was uh, 20, about to turn 22. Um, I had no idea what I was going to do full time for a job. I, I graduated about a, a month earlier and I was just going to hang on there until something else came up. I didn't really have any leads for anything else. And it was, I'll, I'll never forget that moment. I was, I was so excited. I, uh, it was, it was, I, I don't know if I deserved it. I, at the time, I'm sure I felt I did. Uh, but man, but man, it was, uh, it was the start of a, a, a great run and it was, I'll, I'll never forget that day. I was so eternally grateful. I never met Kent. I don't mean mm-hmm. to pry. What was it like when you took that phone call? When, when he died, right. uh, an, an awful, awful moment. Um, I was, it was the day after Halloween and I had been out the night before touch base with him the night before. Uh, he was in the office late as he always was during the week. And I got the phone call from our assistant sports editor, Joe Waljasper, who's a, a dear friend of mine, ended up being my, my boss then for a long time. And uh, it, uh, you just, it's hard to describe. You just, it's, it's, uh, there's nothing to prepare you for something like that. And um, I went into the office and I've, I've told this story a lot. I've told it to, to journalism students. Um, you know, you, you go into the, to the newsroom and it was still afternoon paper at the time and it was probably 10 10 a.m 11 a.m deadline was was 1 p.m to finish the section and and for people listening that don't know the story ken heidel our sports editor was was murdered in the parking lot um on thanks uh on uh halloween and our staff was a couple full-timers um and then some part-timers and we all had to come in that day and get that news, but also put out the paper. Right. Um, so it was the most impressive moment of journalism I've ever seen. I thought there was five, let's see, there were one, two, three, four, there were six computers in the sports department. All six were filled. Everybody at their desk was in tears and was just in shock. And we still put out the paper that day. And, um, you know, police are coming in and interviewing people, just the people that were at the at the scene that night. It was uh, it was surreal. I'll never forget that day. It was it was awful, and um, it took a long time to get over it and kind of move on. But it was it was impressive to see how a group of guys, and it was all guys at the time, could kind of handle the moment. And it was it was something I hope never have to experience again. Hope hope nobody does because it was it was really tough. You know, I may swing and miss on this one. Do you know who Warren Mays is? No, that name doesn't jump out to me. Okay, so Warren was long timer with UPI, right? Okay. And I did UPI stuff for Cardinals sure. and Blues and whatever. He taught me deadlines. And and the way you construct your articles and the way that you think as you're watching a game so that you can get the deadlines. Did guys like Kent leave you with how you look at deadlines nowadays? Yeah, because back then, you know, we didn't we didn't post our stories on the internet right away. It it was more of a fixed deadline, and we've had to evolve a lot since then. Because now they want everything as soon as it's done or close to being done, you got to slap that thing on the internet, and then you can add to it as you go along. So back then, in the early two thousand, late nineties, it was just a much different process. Um, but that that deadline was still like the most important thing. I remember he would go on the road to some road games um, with me, and we both be cranking out a story, you know, trying to get something done on deadline. And and he would read over my shoulder uh, what I had before I sent it into the editors, um, or he'd read something out loud to me, and we'd kind of work together. Um, so yeah, it was just a um, that 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 had to be part of your mindset, had to be just ingrained in you on how to work, especially if you're covering something at night. Um, 
it, for the we, it was an afternoon paper Monday through Friday, but then the Saturday and Sunday section were done like normal papers would be, and you had a night deadline. So yeah, that was definitely part of learning experience. And um, and again, I I don't think people growing up now in the business, you know, they're so used to this twenty four hour news cycle that they're not they never had to work in that uh, environment then where you had this night deadline and everything was based around that. So I it may be even more challenging now, but I think having that experience, you know, in the past was, was really beneficial for sure. So I'm 52. How old are you? I'm 42. All right. So my Missouri class was the first that had computers. Oh, wow. So we had to do it both ways. We had to do it old school. And then we also had to do it on the computers. And what was interesting about it, Dave, was, the game things were not done on the computer. It was the features. It uh, was the things you constructed, which you would think it should have been reversed. It should have been yeah, yeah. the best thing, but it wasn't. It was the the things that you had to craft, columns, whatever words, those were what were on the computers. And you know, when I look at what you do now, and by the way, big fan, when I look at what you do now, I really enjoy the nuance of what you put out. You're you're a beat writer, you've got material and content every day, but I can read it because it's not just dot, dot, dot. And I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, it's, I'm always trying to figure out what people want most and what, what works best. Uh, you know, just cranking out the play-by-play and the scores, it just doesn't cut it anymore because people are on their phones constantly, they know, they know the score, they essentially know what happened. Um, they want more analysis. They want they want more quick hitting stuff. They love lists. Not I don't want to, you know, just feed into that all the time and and not be more thorough and not um, tell the whole story. Sometimes my friend, uh, dear friend, mentor, colleague Vahe Gregorian says all the time, like sometimes you gotta. Sometimes they've got the readers have to eat the broccoli. Like you know, it, it can't be all just candy all the time. Um, so yeah, I'm always guessing or trying to um, explore the process and figure out what what works best because you know the my style in 2001 you know may not work in 2021 or 2011 or wherever in the middle. I, I think you're always kind of looking for what what resonates the best with readers, and uh, that's that's kind of a daily thing for me, or at least an annual thing where I'm always just trying to find the best best approach how much do you struggle with i've got a juicy little tidbit but it's going to ruin my relationship with this person it, it comes up it, it really does um I've, i'm fortunate that i've been able to kind of develop pretty good relationships with a lot of the people i covered in terms of coaches you know with athletes were so restricted on access to them that and they're kind of off in their own little world <laughs> these days that they don't really not many of them do we have a lot of rapport with like what maybe we used to um, back in the day when there's a little more access with coaches though? Yeah, I, I do. I wouldn't say I struggle with it. You just have to find that balance. Like, you know, I've got coaches that will tell me a lot of things and they it's understood that it's off the record. Um, but man, you know, um, I, I think readers would be better off. I think every, everybody would be better off if this was known a little bit more, it would tell the full story, but without maybe, having it be quoted directly um, or, or said verbatim like that. So you, you've got to find that balance where you can still maintain those relationships and, and uh, those sources. But at the same time, I still got to do my job. I can't just know all of this stuff without putting it in some kind of context for the readers to understand and consume too. So that's, I think I'm better at that now than I obviously than you know, you are when you're younger, but um, you know, you, you got to, you got to kind of find that that right approach, and it's different for everybody you cover too. Not everybody, uh, not every relationship is, is the same either. All right. So you mentioned Vahe. By the way, we've we've never met before, so I appreciate this time. I have a good <laughs> yeah. time. Have you heard the following? This is a story I've heard from people who are credible. Missouri Mike Alden in a room with important people. The reason they're in this room is they're going to get a fax that says, welcome to the Big 12. And that fax never comes. Have you heard that story? To the Big 10? 
Sorry, 10, yes. 10. Um, kind of versions of it. You know, I, I know Mike Mike kind of had some meetings to sort of um, just gauge the Big Ten's interest um, because Missouri was definitely interested. And then from there, I think the, the facts sort of sway a little bit depending on who's telling the story. So there, there I mean, there was, a, there was movement there. Um, and I think the Big Ten was interested, but maybe not interested in the same capacity that Missouri was interested in how the membership would work out. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's something to that. And I think as, as time passes, that's been almost, that's been 10 years now. That was that summer of 2011. Um, I think people's versions of the truth, you know, change a little bit too, where <laughs> they've evolved, they've evolved somewhat. So we're going to be reading, I'm sure a lot of look back, looking back stories 10 years later um, on how that all went down. Um, and I'm, I'm a little leery because even people I know well will sort of adjust their version to, uh, you know, make it sound more favorable to their side, I'm sure. Did you ask Gary Pinkle to write his autobiography or did he ask you? That's a, a good question. Um, so his first year out of coaching, uh, which would have been 2016, he and I met for coffee for over coffee, but a story I, I wanted to do on how he experienced the first game that he didn't coach. That's so the season opener of 2016. So we met a, a week or so after that game and uh, it, great interview. We had a good rapport, professional rapport. We weren't, um, I wouldn't say we were close by any means. We weren't, weren't social, but we had a good professional relationship. Um, and so we're done. And I said, Hey, have you ever, because he had mentioned his last year, right around the time he retired, he had mentioned a few times, oh, I'm going to save that story for the book someday. And it was kind of just a throwaway line that he used. So I asked him um, after that interview, when we were done, you know, on the record, I just said, um, you, you said that comment a few times. Are you serious about writing a book? And he looked at me and said, uh, I don't know why. I said, well, I'd love to write it. I'm pretty sure I, I covered more of your 15 years than anybody else. I think I'm as qualified as anybody. And I, I was, I, I didn't want to come off as like too aggressive and I, I too serious, but I wanted to put that in his brain. And he thought about it and he goes, well, I've, yeah, I've, I thought about it, but I haven't really gotten past that part of it. So he goes, let me get back to you. And I don't know how long it was, but it wasn't long at all. Um, he reached out. Uh, he had talked to his agent, um, a gentleman who lives up in Detroit. They had met in college and, and his agent is he doesn't represent a lot of coaches. He represents more uh, uh, like uh, indie car drivers. So um, he hadn't had a lot of experience in, in writing a, in one of his clients writing a book. Um, so they they talked and came back to me and they basically set up a job interview. It was really it was really crazy. We we met at a a, a hotel room in Columbia. They rented it out for the day, and Gary and his his wife Missy and then his agent uh, John. They John flew in um, to Columbia for the day from Detroit and they sat me down and they basically said, okay, what's your plan and why should we pick you to write this book? And uh, I, I came prepared. I had, I had an outline. I said, I've already outlined this book. I know, I know how I would go about it, how we would go about it. Um, they had some pretty tough questions. They said, you know, there's, there's some controversial things that happened, you know, in, in my time, at Mizzou, um, how would you address those? Would you want to address those? I said, yeah, absolutely. We can't hide anything here. Um, you have to be really honest with this process because um, people will see right through that and it won't, it won't be a real book. Um, so they, it went well. I, I felt really good about the meeting. And then a couple of days later, they, they called back and said, all right, you're the writer. We, now we need to find a, a publisher. So um, his agent handled that side of things we went through um, a handful of different publishing companies and just got the ball rolling and it was that was fall of 2016 once we did get a deal uh we, the tough part was okay well college football books need to come out at the start of college football season mm -hmm. that's how they sell that means this book needs to be done end of march and we got that that was so it was november i think when we got that note so we had basically four months plus the holidays to write this book um so that so was, was like it was like cramming for a final yes yes and on top of that you know i didn't i didn't ask for any time off for my day job i can't i can't really do that um i had to cover missouri basketball season at that point and and end the football season but it was mostly over basketball 
And uh, so they gave us a deadline. I think we may have gotten a little bit of an extension. Uh, the editing process took, probably took as, as long, as tedious as it was the, the writing of the book. Um, they had to do a lot of photos and all that stuff. Uh, it was a it was an awesome, incredible experience. I I, you know, got a great friend out of it. I mean, I think Gary and I have a really great relationship. That came out of that. We did book signings for a year together, a lot of events. Um, it was it was just an incredible experience, highlight of my of my career. Um, you know, we made a little bit of money, not a lot. You know, it wasn't it. We didn't get rich or anything like that. Or at least I didn't. <laughs> He's already a billionaire coach. Um, but it was it was awesome. It was I, I thought we did a really good job too. I, I I don't think we sugarcoated things. I thought we really um, told the truth on on uh, a lot of serious topics that came up that were maybe outside of football uh, that were maybe delicate things to approach when I was a reporter covering him. Um, but it was it was awesome. I I I would do it again in a heartbeat if if that opportunity came up. You know, and I need to apologize because I haven't read the book and. We're going to uh, talk about, <clears throat> I'm going to ask you a question in regards to the hunger strike and stuff. But before I yeah. do that, having not read the book, just a blanket question. Anything about how Pinkle got the job that most Tiger fans don't know? It's so not talked about. I mean, we know so yeah. much about how Drink got the job. We know so much about how Martin got the job. I don't yeah. remember a whole lot of stories about how Pinkle got the job. You got anything for me? Yeah, yeah, you know, and part of this was now we told it in like first person voice. We we told the we wrote it. I wrote it in his voice. Um, but I went I went back and interviewed probably around ten people who were are close to Gary to not quote them in the story, but in the book, but to give the story context because there's just parts of his career life that maybe he didn't remember as well that his that his older sister remembers really well, like growing up in Akron. Um, I got a lot of good stuff from his daughter, uh, who was Aaron, who is awesome, great person. And she gave me a lot of great tidbits and memories from growing up in Seattle when he coached at Washington. And then Mike Alden was, was great because he, he filled in a lot of blanks on the hiring process because Gary only remembers things from his mm -hmm. side of things. Uh, Mike told things from the Missouri angle of things. Uh, it got, you know, he was, he was, um, they were, I, I remember, you know, they were talking to about four or five people, I think. Um, Mark Richt was one of them who ended up being George's coach for a long time. Um, uh, a few others, um, candidate coaches, it's kind of funny, coaches that haven't really necessarily gone on to great things. Um, but the, at the time, they were sort of hot candidates. Uh, Bill Self in the mix on this one? <laughs> no, not on this one. No, that was a few years earlier. He certainly was. Um, so when they really narrowed it down to and really liked Gary a lot. Uh, I, I know that they interviewed in Chicago, I, I think. Uh, and then Mike and a couple of people from his staff, they, they hold up in a Chicago, I want to say it was a, a restaurant, um, maybe a restaurant in a hotel. And they were trying to hammer out this deal. And the terms, they were just not on the same page from what I remember. And, um, you know, Gary was getting really frustrated with the process, like really frustrated. Like it wasn't that like, I, I'd like to, I'd love to have this job, but this is not, these aren't the terms I want. And essentially gave them an ultimatum saying, if you don't, if you don't have an answer for me by this time of day, I'm out, I'm done. And, and Gary recalled that very much the same way. So it got a little maybe contentious and maybe it's not even that unique for a negotiation, but um, I, I, Alden, at the time was like, okay, this guy means business. He's, he's, he's a serious coach. He's somebody who's intense. Uh, and he liked that about him. Maybe not like, you know, that he, how the, how that part of the process was, was going on, but then they did, they did figure it out. Um, and I, I think Gary may have, his memory uh, told him that he actually pulled out at one point because he just didn't, he didn't like where it was headed. Uh, but then it all, it all worked out. And yeah, it wasn't like a, I covered it live at the time and I was just, I was a year out of college. Um, and I don't, I don't really remember a lot of great details at the time. Um, cause his name wasn't, didn't really resonate that strong in, in the state of Missouri. Cause he was a mid American conference guy. And then he was really well known on the West coast cause he was in Washington for a long time, but not so much in, uh, the central time zone. So, uh, it, it did kind of go under the radar, I think nationally at the time, but, um, obviously paid off great for both parties. A lot of good memories. 
lot of good yeah. memories. So when you are a beat writer, every day you're looking for content, you're looking to give a different spin or new information to the folks that are reading. Then the hunger strike thing happens and yeah. you've got to put on a different hat. You, you got to put on a non-sports beat writer hat, but like an editorial kind of a person. I never had to deal with that. Yeah. How hard was it to report the facts and not also let your feelings bleed into the words? Yeah, and that was a challenge because there was a lot of, I mean, that was obviously a really polarizing time and everybody had an opinion on it. And I, I felt that the, the challenge for me was, I don't know if the public, and we did our best and they're not just, you know, I, I was at the post-dispatch at that time, but I'd, I'd say the reporters at the Tribune at the time were, were really, really sharp um, everywhere. It was, probably, it, was, it was one of the best times of the Mizzou beat that I've been on in terms of the quality at all the different uh, outlets covering it. And people were reporting a lot of good things. I, just, I don't know how much the public was really grasping what was really going on. I think people had this idea of what was going on and, and because it, 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 it sort of um, amplified their own opinions on the topic. And they didn't really want to know what was really going on. And I felt that was really strongly going on with a lot of the national media that flew in like CNN shows up and, and, and who else ever comes in. And I think they, they thought that the campus was like on fire and that there was riots going on every, excuse me, every day. And that they were going to come to the scene that was just horrific. And it wasn't that way at all. Um, there was so much hearsay going on so much of it was on social media that the, the truth was in there somewhere, but, the sort of just the idea of what was going on didn't really match reality. So that was on my job on top of covering the football team, what's going on there to really figure out what is really happening here. What is the, what is the sports? Because the, the, the part of so much of that started with stuff that had nothing to do with sports. It was all about graduate students on campus who um, were, were upset about some policy, well, the president, with their, with their health insurance. Right. And it, it started with health insurance issues for graduate students. And then it led to, you know, uh, it, it became more of an issue um, that African-American graduate students got involved in. Uh, and then it, and then it came down to the president's just like you said, uh, his his. The way he dealt with it was was just awful. And that that got people more upset. Uh, and then it led to, you know, protests on campus and uh, hunger strike and then it just happens to lead to a football player walking past there and hearing about it and wanting to get involved and getting his teammates involved and it kind of snowballed and um i had to it was my job to like okay what's going on tell the story but also from sort of a sports angle i'm not really covering the health insurance issue here but how did it get to here like how, how did step a b c and d all of a sudden lead to sports and football and this football season being in jeopardy and then how is this head coach dealing with it and the ad and all that so uh it, it was really tricky it, it really was it was all happening in real time too so it was there were some days where okay tomorrow's print story in the paper is just going to be where things stand at deadline like <laughs> that story is probably going to be outdated by the time it, it's in the newspaper so it was a lot of updating the website um, and just trying to get uh, a grasp on what was happening. A lot of what was happening, you know, people that we have to talk to, administrators, media relations people, coaches, uh, they weren't really sharing their true feelings because they probably had some um, much more opinionated things that may have gotten them in trouble. Uh, so it, it was, it was a, just a lot of, there was a lot of BS out there that wasn't really the reality of it all. And people that thought they knew what was happening really didn't know what was really happening. So it was a, it was a, it was a real challenge to cover for sure. Scale one to five, one being not five being a lot. How hard did that hurt recruiting? Um, I think it, it's hard to put it in a vacuum because also Gary Pinkle retires, you know, after his cancer diagnosis and the team wasn't very good that year. So it was all these different things. I, I think it led to a lot of questions from 
um, parents of recruits, especially ones from more local, like within the state, because they got a lot more of the coverage of it maybe. Whereas if you're a recruit in Texas or California, you kind of see the headlines, but you're like, I don't know if this is that big of a deal. In state, I think it was made to be, uh, there was a lot more interest in it. Um, so I, I think it, it probably contributed to some degree, um, you know, for black athletes that just didn't know what was going on on campus and just had questions. And it's, you know, if, if you're, if you're like Mizzou, but you like three other programs, maybe it's an, it's an easy uh, topic to sort of disqualify Missouri from your list. Just be like, Oh, there's stuff going on there. I don't want to deal with this. Uh, so I, I think it had some kind of effect, but it's, it's hard to really measure for sure. Um, what it did. I think it had more of an effect on, on ticket sales and um, just kind of general interest in the program. I think the, the, the uh, bandwagon got a little lighter after that. And part of it was the team wasn't as good. And, um, you know, they hired a, a guy who had never been a head coach before. So there was some uncertainty on the future of the program, but I'm sure there was, there's some, there were folks there that thought, looked at it from a political, through a political lens and said, I don't like how they, this was handled. Um, I'm not going to support this place anymore. Um, it's easier to do when the team's losing. You know, if they're competing for championships, I think folks can put those things aside and just they want to be there and tailgate and enjoy the game. Um, but the fact that they were losing and uh, it made that probably an easier decision to make for some folks. Right, Dave. Really appreciate this. We probably got about 10 minutes to go. Sure. When people talk about Mizzou transferring into the SEC, right? Yeah. One of the things that has gotten lost is that we could have gone to the whack. We could have yeah. gone. To, I mean, people don't understand. We were looking for a conference. And when right. the SEC said, how about you join us? We were like, oh, my God. In comparison to what our options are, we would love to go to the SEC. Talk to me about your your thoughts on that. Yeah, I get asked a lot, you know, does Mizzou regret this? Because it is so competitive. It is um the the money spent on on athletics on facilities uh how hard it is to compete in in a lot of sports football baseball um women's basketball gymnastics i mean it is it's really really tough because you're talking about the elite programs in the country was it all worth it and i always come back with well you have that decision was made at the time it wasn't made now and at the time there was no faith at all that the Big 12 was going to survive and that Missouri was going to have a landing spot in a major conference. So the, I hate this expression, but the gun was to their head and they had to make a decision. And then comes this offer from the SEC. You cannot turn that down. I mean, you can't. It's not just the prestige of being in the SEC. It's, it was about the, the way that schools are treated in that league. Everybody is Everybody is equal as far as the finances go as far as, you know, there's no junior membership. That was part of the issue with the big 10, that uh, you, you had to kind of earn your way in after a few years. Um, and, and the league wanted them. Now, was it the best cultural fit? No, I don't think so. I don't, Missouri's a dip, now, the dip, obviously Missouri's a state that is oh, fractured is the right word, but, but the Southeast, the boot heel is a lot different from the metro areas in Kansas city and St. Louis and which is a lot different from the Lake of the Ozarks region to up Northeast Missouri, which is practically, you know, Iowa to the Northwest corner. It's a very odd state because there's just so many different, different regions and cultural aspects to the state of Missouri. Does it, does it fit with the SEC footprint? Um, it's a lot different than Louisiana and Alabama and Mississippi and Florida, but um, would it fit better in the big 10? Yeah, I, I think so. I think the state has more in common with, with places like, uh, Illinois and you know Michigan and and Nebraska and which was new to the league too uh, to some degree but at the time when you're making that decision it's either the SEC which is the most stable conference in America uh, and lucrative or it's stick around in this Big 12 which there's no guarantee this thing is going to survive because nobody trusted anybody uh, or worst case scenario is you end up like you said in one of the mid-major conferences, uh, the the WAC or the Mountain West or the Big East or something like that. So at the time, it was a no-brainer. I mean, you, they had to make that call. And it came with the, the uh, 
commitment they had to make. And Gary Pinkle said this all the time. You can't join the SEC if you're going to, if the status quo is good enough for you, you have to improve all the time to keep up with everybody. And that falls on coaches, administrators, the fans, donors, everybody. They had to be able to do that. And at the time, sure, that was what they wanted to do. Uh, it, it was a no brainer. So do they regret it? No, I don't think they regret it because what, what was the alternative? There was no certainty uh, as far as the other options at the time. Great answer. All right. Unfair question. Favorite football, favorite basketball game. That I've covered. Yes. Um, no, that I've you watched it on TV on your couch. Yeah. No, man, that you covered. Um, it's, it's hard to top uh, the 2007 Armageddon at Arrowhead, Missouri, Kansas game. Um, I, I think for the most part, and not not because the outcome, it was the buildup. Uh, nobody ever thought that Missouri and Kansas would be playing a game, fierce rivals, hated rivals. They would be playing a game that meant so much on a national scale. I mean, the winner of that game was going to go to number one in the country and have a clear shot at playing for the national title. Both schools just happened to be having, both teams happened to be having the best season arguably ever one of the best in decades at the same exact time I mean that doesn't happen um I, I remember being in the press box for that game and all the there's so many national media there and they were just like dumbfounded because they hadn't really covered Missouri all year or Kansas for that much and they were it was surreal for them because they never thought they'd be covering a game whether they work for Sports Illustrator ESPN or whatever Washington Post they never thought they'd be you know, in that environment. And, and a bunch of them, they said, oh, let's take a group picture of all the Mizzou grads that are here at this game. And I, I got in the picture, although I thought it was kind of weird because I'm like, I, I've been covering all of these games, not just, I just don't show up for the, uh, the big one at the end. But I think it was more just capturing the moment of, hey, who would have thought, you know, how many years later after each of us had graduated from this place that they'd be playing this relevant, highly relevant number one game in the country. So, and then it was a great game. It was, it was back and forth for a while. Had a lot of memorable moments, more memorable if you're a Missouri fan, for sure. And it meant, it meant so much Just going down. I remember going down on the field in the final five minutes. And then afterwards as it's over and the coaches from Missouri, most of them had only been there seven years with, with Gary. Some of them were in tears. Like they just never thought they'd experience something like that. And then the fans too. I mean, it was, it, it was like the twilight zone. Like who would have thought Missouri would win a game like this on an, on an NFL field against their rival when the rival was having this great season. And then, Oh, here's the reward for it. You're going to be the number one team in America in two days when the polls come out. It was, I don't know if Missouri will ever experience anything like that again. Uh, certainly not with the two fan bases at, at the same time. Um, basketball. I didn't cover basketball as much at the um, Columbia Tribune. I was just a football guy. So I, I brought on, I, I added basketball, um, when I went to the post-dispatch and there have been a lot of great epic. I games saw a story you and then. Stu did on the 10th anniversary yes. of the bragging rights game. Yeah. And that, that was the great triple overtime game. And I was at that game as, as a kid with my dad. And um, yeah, that was the most memorable game I've been at. And most, I mean, nothing will ever top that. That was unbelievable. I just remember the fans leaving because they thought there was no shot. Uh, and I don't even remember what team. I guess probably the Missouri fans were leaving, and then they make this comeback. Every every you know decent player follows out from Missouri. They've got freshmen that haven't even played that much coming in the game. It was wild. It was at the old arena. I think it was the last year it was at the old arena right. before it moved over to uh, Savage or Enterprise or whatever we're calling it now. I don't um, think I, I don't so, yeah. think I've seen a uh, double pump three pointer since then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Keywan Garris at the free throw line. All he needs to do is. <laughs> hit a free throw to win the game with no time left and Norm Stewart yelling at the officials trying to trying to throw him off. It was uh that was something else. That, that was I, I don't know I think if I knew at that point I wanted to be a sports writer. I probably had the idea of maybe, but man, it would have been fun to be, you know, on press row that night and be able to write about that one. So what's fun now? You wake up and the first pleasant thought you think is what? <laughs> uh I've got to get the four year old to to uh, preschool or daycare first. And then I can kind of think about work. Uh, I try not to grab the phone and see what happened on Twitter overnight first, but usually that is kind of what you do. Um, I'm, I'm really into routines, and, you know, this is the time of year where there's not much of a routine. So I'm 
I'm always thrown off a little bit because there's not a season going on. Uh, so you're dealing with just a lot of kind of news that happens and a lot of it's sort of unexpected. You just never know when it's going to drop. Uh, and I, I don't like that as much. I mean, nobody likes it. You, you never, you can never really take a day off because you just don't know what that day is going to bring you. It's different if it's in season, you're kind of, you're on, you're on high alert then. Cause like, okay, I'm writing about this game coming up or I've got this press conference or I got to write this story for today. Now you're in that, uh, it's, it's just a, it's just an odd time of year. No matter how many times I, I've done this over the years, you get into April, May, June, before you can maybe take a vacation in July and then start it up again in August. Um, it, it's, it's very uncertain, uneasy times because, uh, you know, you're just in the, in the thick of the off season. And that's when, that's when crazy stuff can happen sometimes. I'm going to point you in this direction. Why is Missouri's football program improving? I think they have a leader. I think they have got a guy who has a plan and Eli Drinkwitz. Uh, he's got a really strong vision for what this program, what any program, what they take would take to, to win at a high level. And I, and think what he's done is just brought it to Missouri and he's adapting to uh, what this program needs and, and what it takes to win at Missouri. Um, I, he doesn't have a, a track record like Gary Pinkle did, he's, he's a lot younger than what Gary was when he got here. And Gary had done it for 10 years at a mid-major program. And before that, he'd been at a, a, a big-time program at Washington and saw how it, how uh, the blue, saw the blueprint, you know, to win championships. So that's different. But I, I think they are very similar in knowing what it looks like, what it feels like, what it takes uh, to, to build a winner. And I think they have that in common. I think you've got very strong personality. He knows what he wants. Um, and I think that the charisma factor, that doesn't win games alone, but I think it, it sells really well. And I think it'll make people, the right people care about the program. And you need people to care about your program to build a winner, whether that's uh, the recruits, obviously, but the high school coaches and then the fans. Missouri needs fans to buy in if you want to compete in the SEC as far as buying tickets, donating money and just having um, having that that following that you need and a guy with his charisma and personality can do that and uh, it's, it's it's pretty cool to see I, uh, I I don't know him super well yet COVID kind of threw uh, made that part of the job difficult really getting to know the coach and, and the staff because it everything was just so impersonal over Zoom but I've gotten a chance to a little bit more as as restrictions around town protocols have, have uh, relaxed a little bit. Um, and I think once Mizzou fans will get a chance to see him more in person uh, and enjoy what he brings to the table, they're, they're going to see they got a pretty good one. And uh, it, it's, it's exciting to cover. Again, leading you down a path, why should Tiger basketball fans take a breath? Uh, well, um, I, I really like, and I, I don't, I don't, um, I think people who follow me know that I, I like him a lot personally. I, I admire a lot of things about him and the way he runs a program, the way he runs his life. I, I do think it's fair to say there's a lot of uncertainty about the, the future, but I, I think what's happening at Missouri right now is not that uncommon as far as the roster. Uh, they're going through a major rebuild right now. And a lot of people are, and a lot of it has to just do with the nature of the sport and a lot of the NCAA rules and loopholes and things that have allowed and are allowing players to move around more easily than ever. And it's for some coaches more than others, it's a real challenge. I mean, you've got to rely on this transfer portal now and that can be kind of scary, but on the other end, there's a lot of really good players out there. Um, but you never know how secure your roster is because um, you're, your fifth starter may want to be playing more minutes and getting more shots and wants to go somewhere else. Your, your third guy off the bench uh, wants to be a starter. So he, he wants to go somewhere else. And I don't, there's not, there's not this sense of loyal. I, I, think, I think the reason fans struggle with it is they fans have a, a, a sense of loyalty to their team. They only root for one team. They're not, they're not kind of a Mizzou fan, but also kind of a, you know, Illinois fan, kind of an Oklahoma State fan. You're a Mizzou fan. That's that's where your loyalty is. Well, these these players don't don't see it that way. Their loyalty is to where um, 
they have the best opportunity to play and, and uh, become the best player they, they, they can be and move on to the next level, whatever that is. And coaches really don't have that same loyalty either. Now they're loyal to their person who signs their check, but there's, a, there's other people willing to give them checks also. So I think that's what fans struggle with. They struggle with the player movement and um, they can't really process it the right way. But if you, if you do sit back and look at the landscape right now, um, th- I think things are going to be okay, provided that Gonzo brings in good players to replace the ones he's, he's losing. If, if, you, if you bring in better players than the ones that leave, then you can win in college basketball. You can win right away. That's, that's the trick. You just got to be able to do that. So um, I am cautiously optimistic because I think they've got the right guy. I, I really do believe in him and, and what he uh, brings to a program. Um, but you're only as good as the players on your team, and you, you've got to upgrade that roster. There's no doubt about that. Dave, really have appreciated the time. And what's your uh, Twitter handle? I know it, but what is it for everybody? It's uh, it's at Dave underscore matter so you got to get that underscore between dave and matter there's another there's another dave matter i think out there that uh is not me so i'm not asking you does the post dispatch put pressure on you i'm asking you in 2021 is there a unprecedented pressure of you being socially available to people um i don't think the paper really does i think it's just part of the job uh, you know i I try to use Twitter and the way I've used it has, has evolved over the years. Um, I don't need people to, I don't need to sell myself as much as I need to bring people to um, the paper's website. So there, there's not much incentive for me as far as my career and where I work to have uh, to really not only put news out just on Twitter alone, but to engage people back and forth so much. Um, I do a chat once a week. I could probably do it three times a week um, because people are that interested depending on the time of year. Uh, But I just try to bring them back to the story, bring them back to the work that I do. And that can kind of speak for itself. Uh, I I don't get the copy and pasting these great answers you get in a press release and throwing it out on Twitter for everyone else to see. I mean, try try to sell your product and be loyal to your your company and get get the eyeballs on there instead of Twitter. Yeah, folks ask me for questions all the time. And they want want me to answer them on Twitter, and sometimes I will if it's short and easy. But if it's it's a really long type answer, uh, uh, something that uh, I can point to a story I've written before, I'll just say, hey, I, I don't work for Twitter. It doesn't do me any good here. Good. Um, go go back to the paper where I've written this and I've covered it, and and I work there extensively. That's that's who pays my bills. So I I think that is. Um, that, that you have to learn over time. It's so getting the likes and the retweets can be intoxicating. And especially for a young reporter who's trying to build their brand. Uh, I, I, I've kind of gotten to the point where, you know, my number of followers is probably not going to go up a whole lot anymore. I've kind of maybe hit a ceiling. So let's just come back and read, read what I've written and reported at the, at the Post-Dispatch instead of what I'm just giving out here for free on Twitter. Do you have a non-sports book in your future? Good question. Um, I, I would have to find uh, some time to do anything. And time is, um, <laughs> there's no, there's no time. I've got three kids running around that uh, consume a lot of my time. Um, I'd love to, sure. I mean, I've, I've had ideas. Um, I, I like to read fiction. I'd, I'd love to be able to uh, flex those muscles at some point. I don't even have those muscles, so maybe find those muscles first. Um, but yeah, I've, I've, I've had ideas. Sure. Um, and then other times too, just, you know, more sports related ideas for books. Um, those ideas are always kind of in in my head, but you know, it's just, it's hard. It's hard to find the time to do those things. I think there was a, maybe an earlier generation, um, sports writers or journalists could go to their boss and say, Hey, I need this much time off to write a book. And that at a daily paper in today's in today's climate, um, that doesn't exist. You know, there's, we, we've got to work a lot of hours um, to feed the beast. And I, you know, I, I don't know how I, the, the Pinkle book, I'm not really sure how I did that looking back. I mean, I, I was, I was working full time. Our, uh, our, we have a four-year-old who was, I think one at the time, maybe, maybe, maybe not even hadn't turned one yet. Um, 
And I, I don't know how I did. It was a lot of late hours. I cannot stay up as late as I did when I now is when I was writing that book. So it's it's hard. It's really really hard because you, you know a book a book lasts forever, and you you want to make that thing as perfect and as, as good as you can. Um, and and you're hoping a lot of people read it. And uh, you know you can't. It's not something you can just sort of do on a whim. You really got to put a lot of time and, and effort into it. So it's it's hard to find that time. Dave, I really enjoy your work. Hope you had a good time. Did you have a good time? Yeah, this is great. This is awesome. Hey, do me a favor. Call Pinkle or the next time you talk to <laughs> Gary and tell him you had a good time and he should return my phone call. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. I will. I'll try. Stay safe. Stay good, man. Take care. Okay. Thanks. And another one for the books. That was fun. Thanks for subscribing. Let you know about upcoming guests. We'll hang out together again on Thursday. Going to go out of my lane a little bit on this one and talk with Terry Cruz's wife, Rebecca King Cruz. If all you know about her is that she's Terry's wife, you're missing out. As we do, thanks for your time this time. Till next time, so long.